Father, thank you that you're a good God who loves to speak. As we come to this time of the week again, where as your people we gather together around your words, would you again please open our ears to hear your voice. Thank you that you know each of us. Thank you that you know what's going on. You know what's going on behind the smiles. You know the reality. And so we ask that as we open your words, you would speak into our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a believer here this morning, there is something you want, or there's a situation that needs sorting, or there's a, a pickle on a Tuesday morning, and, and the question is, when push comes to shove, do you listen to how God would have you sort that? Do you do things his way? Or, or really, when it comes down to it, do you do things your own way? Or you're in a disagreement with someone, how do you respond to them? You have a choice in what you say and how you say it, and what you do maybe even in how you process the situation later on. How high on your agenda, how high on our agenda is God's way of responding to these situations? How much does he shape how we deal in these things? Or another one, maybe, maybe we begin to believe the voices that say, God doesn't really want the best for you. He just wants to keep you in your place. He wants to come and to suck the life out of life. And the voices are persistent, are they? They drip and drip and drip and they keep eroding our thoughts and maybe we would come to believe that, to feel that. Perhaps if we really do want to live, then all the other voices around us all the time are worth listening to. Maybe they know what they're talking about. That thing, that person, that experience, that haircut, that holiday, whatever it is, that buzz, those are the things really that we need to enjoy true life. And so the question is, whose voice wins? When it comes down to it, whose words shape us? And we know the right answer, of course we do. And we know what we're meant to say. We know what ought to happen, but when stresses are high and we're feeling anxious and our pulse is raised and we need to act and maybe no one's looking, then... Who wins? Or when the other voices are really alluring and persuasive and convincing and eroding, who wins? Maybe the Lord says wait and we don't want to wait and the Lord says no and we want him to say yes or the Lord says yes but actually you wanted him to say no and maybe he says trust me and you're just not sure. Whose voice wins? At the heart of this passage for this morning we see something of that tension worked out in the life of Saul. That's the trajectory of the text. That's where it's going. As Andrew was teaching the children, Saul may have been the kind of king the people wanted. It turns out he wasn't the kind of king they actually needed. And he may have ruled for decades, which he does, but when it comes down to it, he he wasn't a king after the Lord's own heart. And if we've been here the last few weeks, this is the story we knew was coming, yeah? This is the inevitable. 
This has always been the case. It's obvious from the start, in one sense, that Saul was the wrong king. And here we see that worked out. And you remember, it matters for them. It matters because they are a people in the land and they're looking to apply the word of God, the law of God. And so they need leadership. They're settled. They need someone to show them, to help them work out the law of God. So that the nations looking in will think, wow, wow, I would love to live under the rule of a God like that. I would love to know that kind of a God. And yet they have a king like the nations. The Lord allowed them. He gave them what they wanted to show them that it wasn't what they needed. And in chapter 12, if you've got your um, Bibles open, the second half of chapter 12, we see the whole thing repeated. We've had it in one sense in previous weeks, but it's repeated in chapter 12. The whole idea with the problem of kingship in Israel is that ultimately the Lord is their true king. You get that the second half of chapter 12. Um, And we've jumped halfway through into an argument, really. This is Samuel's farewell speech. He's been seeking to convince God's people logically and rationally and calmly that, that the king that they have asked for must follow the Lord. And if, if they or their king do not follow the Lord, then the Lord will bring his righteous judgment against them. He is pure, he is holy, he is good, and if they turn their backs on him, then there are consequences. So have a look at verse 13. Um, now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, then good. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. So in one sense, he's laid out all these rational arguments. Um, this king and you are to follow the Lord, and I'm not joking, And let me prove that to you by a sign. There's a sign from the Lord, verse 16. Now, now then stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord and at that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain so all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. Now, it was wheat harvest, verse 17. I'm not a farmer. Um, I'm hoping someone like John Fanning would agree with me that apparently wheat harvest is around May to June, at least in this part of the world. And for us in our country, May to June, you might get thunderstorms. And we've had them in the last few weeks. For them, for where they were, it was completely unheard of. The Lord is going to send thunder and rain to prove to them that what Samuel is saying is true. And the striking thing is, perhaps even for the first time, the people of God seem to suddenly get it. There seems to be a genuine recognition that their motives in asking for a king were actually wrong. That God was to be their king. He was the one to rule them. It was his word over his people. And as they reject his rule, as they ask for a monarchy like the rest of the nations, it's as if God is saying to them, okay, you asked for this, I've given it to you. But it was the wrong thing to ask for. And the name Saul actually means asked for. You've asked for it, Israel. And finally the penny seems to drop. 
the people get it, they've asked for a bad thing. Literally, an evil thing is the phrase we get again and again. Four times you get that word from the um, lips of Samuel. Sometimes they're on Samuel's lips of what they did, and sometimes it's on the people's lips. So have a, a fly over, verse 17. You will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 19. Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die, say the people, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Verse 20, you have done all this evil, yet you do not turn away from the Lord. Verse 25, if you persist in doing evil, there, there seems to be genuine conviction in the people of God. Verse 16 to 19, they get it now. Oh, as we asked for a king, actually we were rejecting the Lord. As we asked for a king like the nations, we didn't want to follow God's plan. There's this genuine conviction, but then there's a beautiful assurance in verse 20 to 25 from Samuel. Don't be afraid. Actually, we've done that already together as a people this morning. It's how we ought to confess our sins together. Isn't that right? A reality, an acknowledgement of our ongoing uncleanness, that we've not lived as, as we ought to, as those who have been forgiven and adopted and reconciled. and We mourn over our sin and we confess our sin, but, but we don't linger there. We don't linger there because very quickly behind we have the reality of the assurance that we have because we're his. In these bodies we, we don't live as we ought to. But yes, in Christ we are forgiven and covered and accepted. We don't linger in the reality of our sin because we are new creations in him. We have a humble assurance. We, we know what our God is like. We, with confession comes assurance. But we're not to be complacent or satisfied in one sense with our progress, but daily to live for him, daily to turn to him, daily to turn away from the false gods whom it is so easy to listen to, who capture our hearts and our affections, but daily to turn towards him. And so have a look again at 20. To 25, and you see something of that as you, as you recognise your sin, Israel. Verse 20, do not turn away from the Lord. Verse 21, do not turn away after useless idols. Why? Well, verse 21, they can do no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. He's pretty blunt, isn't he? And we read it and we think, well, of course they are. But we live it and our hearts don't believe that because we think, well, maybe this time they will rescue us or maybe this time they will bring us joy or maybe this time they're not going to be quite so useless as last time. Now, as you recognise your sin, turn to him and away from them. And look, you see... In doing that, verse 22, it's for the sake of his great name that the Lord will not reject them. As a nation, he's promised to love them, to pour out his love upon them, to not forsake them, to not reject them. And so because the Lord will not forsake them, so Samuel will not either, verse 23. What does for the sake of his name mean? Well, his name is a revelation of himself and his character. He, it's him telling the world what he is like, how good he is. His glory, that the world might see how amazing this God is. This God we were made to know. 
And so for the sake of his name, he won't reject them because he wants the world to see how incredible he is. And so Samuel, Samuel will continue to do the job of prophet. He will continue, like Moses for example, to continue to pray for them to continue to to preach to them, verse 22 and 23, to teach them. He will continue in this role that the Lord has established for him. (coughs) God is patient with his people. Their evil deeds, they've rejected him, but he's not going to give up on them because of what he's like. He is patient. And yet, and we've seen this already in this series, his patience is not in one sense eternal. It it makes us uncomfortable to deal with some of this stuff, but in a number of places in the New Testament, the Lord will point churches back to Old Testament stories like these and use them as warnings for congregations. Don't do what they did. Don't run after false gods. Don't keep doing that. Which means as you transition from chapter 12 to chapter 13, there's an ominous nature to that hinge. Verse 25, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. And we're meant to feel the weight of that. If chapter 12 reminds us that the Lord is our true king, then chapter 13 reminds us that Saul is the wrong king. This is where it all happens. Just to pull back from the passage slightly, a few things going on in chapter 13 that it's worth just getting to grips with. Um, The first thing to say in verse 13, we meet Jonathan for the first time, Saul's son. He makes a small but important cameo appearance in chapter 13. Um, We'll learn in chapter 14 that he is Saul's son. He will be an important character for the chapters to come. He will uh, be good friends with uh, with David. But from this point, when Saul's demise seems to be 100% sure, you might expect Jonathan to be the guy who kind of steps in to be the replacement, to be the reserve. But again, the surprise is David is adopted in. Samuel is a book in which unexpected sons are adopted into families um, to succeed their fathers. It seems as well, if you look at chapter 13, we might be expecting a positive thing to start off with. We might be expecting some hope, it seems to me, because I think there's an allusion to Gideon there at the beginning. Do you remember Gideon? If you were here uh, a year and a bit ago, one of the judges, we looked at him in the spring of um, 2017, and we were there for four weeks Gideon was one of the judges and the Lord deliberately shrinks his army down do you remember again and again and again um, until he's just left with 300 soldiers okay, he wants Gideon and the people to see that the Lord is the faithful one um, who will deliver his people well have a look here then at verse 2 you've got Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel 2,000 were with him at, at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And you think, 3,000 men deliberately mentioned? That, that sounds a bit like Gideon. 
that number is a similar number to Gideon's, but more than that, the fact that he sends loads of the army home, end of verse 2. It feels hopeful, it feels like he's expecting victory, it feels like it's all going to be okay. The thinking reader, I think, is meant to join the dots. Hey, great, Saul, he's learnt the lessons of history, he's limited the number of people, he's got a similar number of people to Gideon. It's going to be victory in the bag, isn't it? But then what's striking, verse 3 again, doubts creeping in. Jonathan attacked, that is, Jonathan defeated the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. It's strange that Jonathan attacks the Philistines rather than Saul. That seems to not be quite right. He is their commander-in-chief. He ought to have been the one who drove them into battle. But then verse 4, he takes the glory for it, it seems. It feels maybe like he's the kind of leader who, who shirks responsibility but then claims credit. Something's not quite right with Saul, even from the beginning. Even as he's introduced, we're sort of scratching our heads. And then it all kicks off, no going back. Um, They've rattled the hornet's nest. Um, Verse 5 to 7, the Philistines gather in huge numbers. Do you see? And soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And you're thinking, those are biblical words of plenty. This is Genesis language for number and for blessing. And more than that, Israel then hide away. They, um, verse 6 and 7, they hide in the caves and the thickets and the cisterns, almost like they're buried and gone. Verse 7, some even choose voluntary exile out of the land. And we're scratching our heads. The Philistines in the ascendancy, this is not Gideon time. Where's the victory we were thinking of? This almost seems like reversal and unblessing under the hand of this king and suddenly then the the problem becomes clear the fact that Jonathan goes into battle first and that Saul takes the credit that's nothing that's just the starters the main course in the battle we see Saul's true colours we see his sin have a look at verse 8 Saul waited for seven days and the time set by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter so he said bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings and Saul Saul offered up the burnt offering the time set by Samuel verse 8 if you flip back three chapters to to 10 verse 8 you see where that comes from Samuel had said, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to to you and tell you what you are to do. Samuel says, listen Saul, wait for a week, wait seven days and I will be there. And Saul does seem to kind of wait seven days, but not all of the seventh day. And so Samuel comes back to find the sacrifices still burning. It's just happened. What does Saul do when he's faced with problems? What does Saul do when he is anxious and stressed? Does he trust the Lord? No, no, he takes matters into his own hands. 
And maybe we think, it just sounds a bit severe, really. Doesn't it? Has Samuel overreacted? Has the Lord overreacted? It was just a sacrifice. He was just a few hours out. Come on. I think we can't say that. Look, the Bible's always totally crystal clear. How we approach, approach God, how we worship God, how we communicate with him, he sets out detailed instructions for how we do that. He gives them the instructions for the tabernacle, or the temple, or the priesthood, or the sacrifices, or when they are done, or where they are done, or who can do them, how, can, how they can do them. There is no room for ambiguity. There is no room for creativity. We may not worship God on our own terms. And he's not just being a stickler or a pedant or annoying. It's because he is awesomely holy and good and righteous. And we are not. And if we want to approach him, we have to approach him on his terms. (coughs) There's something profoundly human profoundly worldly about wanting to do things our own way. About thinking we know better than God as to how we ought to worship him. It's very common in our culture. Maybe the conversations you have with friends or neighbours or colleagues. I like to worship God in this way, if there is a God, they say. But it's got implications for all kinds of things. It's wrong. Maybe it has implications for how we shape our worship services. What is acceptable to put in? What is acceptable to God? We see we can't just play fast and loose with, with worship. There is such a thing as an acceptable worship, which is very different from what our culture will say. God gives us parameters, and when we get it wrong, there are consequences. And here, King Saul, in not waiting for the prophet Samuel, rejects the word of God as he rejects Samuel's words. And remember, on top of that, the king was to be one who lived his life under the word of God as he ruled his people. He was obedient to it. He was shaped and moulded by it. Because if they're going to have a king, he needs to be a king who rules like the Lord's. And what's he done? Kind of first hurdle, really? He's not trusted. He has fallen. He's not the king they need. But then Saul notches it up a level for us as well. Because you look at his response. He realises he's got it wrong. And instead of saying... Samuel, I'm sorry, I was impatient, I didn't trust you, I didn't trust the Lord. Instead of repenting, verse 11, well, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. (coughs) What's he doing? Who's he blaming? Where does he point the finger? Well, the men were scattering, Samuel. You didn't turn up. The Philistines were assembling. I felt compelled. I had to do I had no choice. Don't blame me. He's caught in the act of sin, but once again he shirks responsibility. Does that ring any bells? 
he doubts the word of God. He thinks he knows best. He shifts the blame to everyone else. There's more than an unpleasant whiff of Genesis 3 here, isn't there? Do you remember Adam and Eve? They thought they knew best. They doubted God's word to be good. They doubted God to provide what they needed. And there Adam points the finger everywhere but himself. Saul has more than a passing resemblance to Adam here. And it's as if the writer's saying, do you see it? Do you see he's a king like Adam? Or maybe he's saying, do you see it? He's like us, isn't he? I don't know what you thought when we started the sermon with how much the word of God shapes us. If you engaged with that, if you were willing to engage with that. But when we struggle to trust him, we prefer to do things our own way. As I've examined my heart in preparation here, it's painful. Isn't it? I see far too much of me in Saul. The ability to doubt God's word, not quite sure he's got it covered. The ability, if you were here, if you were there last time at the weekend away, to be too much like Naomi. My world seems to be falling apart. I'm going to hurry the Lord along a bit here. I'm just going to speed things up. I'm not quite sure he's got it covered. I'll just sort of work out my plans. Hope he blesses them. Or, or maybe it's. Maybe it's when we are found out and rather than quickly taking the blame and saying, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I got that wrong. Isn't sorry a hard word to say? We just point fingers. We don't put our hands up. We point our fingers to everyone else. Anywhere other than me. It wasn't my fault. I had to do it. You made me do it. You gave me these genes. You put me in this situation. You just wind me up the wrong way and I have to respond and react like this. Don't we? We find it hard to say sorry. Why so Saul points the finger everywhere but himself. And at this point, in one sense, this, this kicks off the slow and steady decline of Saul. It'll take a while, but here it begins. We see his inadequacy. We see the need for a new king. We see the need for a king, not so much in the line of Adam, but in the line of another Adam, one who trusts the word of the Lord. So verse 14 Samuel says to Saul, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And indeed King David will come. In a couple of weeks time, chapter 16, the Lord um, will say to Samuel, well, 1 Sam 16 and verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There is Samuel looking at King David's taller, older brothers. And the Lord says, no, no, it's about the heart. Later in the Bible, we'll read Acts 13, 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. A man after the Lord's own heart will be appointed. He is the one that's needed. And Saul, well, his influence is waning. 
He's a king, but he's only a king by name. It's striking, isn't it? 12 verse 25. If you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. It feels pretty hopeless, because we've just seen the kind of king that Saul is. But then don't forget, the Lord will not turn his back on his people. He is patient with them. 12 verse 22. The sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, says Samuel... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and I will teach you the way that is good and right. And we're left longing for more again. Saul was disobedient. We've seen that this week. He points the finger anywhere but himself. David will be crowned and he starts well. But even he will be disobedient. His infamous adultery with Bathsheba, the subsequent cover-up, the, the desire to make sure Bathsheba's husband Uriah is killed in battle, it's a tangled web that he weaves. The difference with David over Saul is that when David is confronted with his sin, he confesses immediately. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There there is triumph in the life of David. But there's tragedy as well. Every time everything is shot through and stained with sin and with pride. And we're left thinking, we need a king who's perfect. We need a king who does not sin, who won't let his people down. We need a king we can trust. We need a king who is good and who is always good. We need a king who doesn't sin, but more than that, maybe we need a king who will deal with sin as well. And we have one. In fact, we have a king who who didn't sin, and yet because of his love for his people took sin that was not his own upon himself and was punished for it and removed it from us because of his love and his kindness for people like us who don't deserve it who ourselves are shot through with sin and pride who point the finger everywhere but ourselves we have a king who bled for us We have a king who wore a crown of thorns for us. We have a king who was lifted up and glorified on a cross for people like us. Friends, our king is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king we long for, the king who is good the king who pours himself out for his people, the king who does not point his finger and blame others, but rather takes sin upon himself. (coughs) Help us to trust you, please. Would your word trickle down into our lives, shaping us, changing us, Indeed, making us more like you. We confess we see far too much of Saul in ourselves. We confess we see far too much of the people 
and we long to see more of Christ. Be at work in us, we pray.